<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And boy, what a day. We've been talking about the media and how, you know, what a screaming disaster it is. The media is a huge issue. And a subset of this huge issue, frankly, is, you know, how we learn what we learn, how, how we're figuring out what's going on. For example, the situation in Guatemala. What we don't know about this and why why that allows basically the kind of demagoguery that we've been getting out of Donald Trump. Speaking of the media, we are super pleased. On the line with us is Professor Greg Grandin. He's a professor of history at New York University, a member of the nation's, the nation magazine's editorial board, the author of numerous books, including his latest out in March of this coming year. It's titled The End of the Myth from the Frontier to the Border Wall. And an earlier book, The Last Colonial Massacre, details the nefarious history of the Border Patrol, particularly one of its founding agents, John Logan. TheNation.com is the website, and your Twitter handle is Greg Grandin, G-R-E-G-G-R-A-N-D-I-N. Professor, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Tom. Thanks for joining us. So I read your piece, and I've, uh, you know, a few others. There's this young woman, Jacqueline M.I. Rosary Calmanquin. She's a member of the Ketchy people? Am I saying Kekchi, that right? Kekchi Maya. Yeah. Um, and that back in, in 1999, the, the UN Truth Commission said that there was 200,000 people killed out of her tribe. Eight out of ten were indigenous. Um, well, 200,000 uh, over the course of the Guatemalan Civil War, maybe a, a little bit over 100,000 over a two-year period of the Maya, of the Maya more broadly. Right. right. So give Kekchi, us a sense the, of what was going on in Guatemala and what was prompting it, what promoted this, and where are we at right now with it? Yeah, well, this, I mean, as, as many of your listeners will know, this was the, this was the fallout of the, of the 1954 CIA intervention in Guatemala, the overthrow of a democratically elected, you know, basically a New Deal reformer trying to institute some social reforms, including land reform, and the CIA uh, staged a coup. It was one of its first coups, a kind of full-spectrum coup, coup the year before they, they had intervened and overthrew Mossadegh in, in Iran, but that was a very quick operation. Guatemala was almost a year-long operation that drew on all of the different facets of American power, including psychological warfare. And, and, and the genocide in the early 1980s, late 1970s 
was was uh, was part of a, the civil war that stemmed from that coup. Basically, the you know the restitution, the restoration of of oligarchic power after 1954, and and different waves of reformers trying to challenge that power that radicalized into a into an insurgency, a guerrilla war, and. The response was this wholesale massacre in one of the hottest hit places were where these two children were from, you know, Jacqueline, Carl, Makin, but also Felipe Gomez, who also died in uh, the custody of the, the Border Patrol uh, just in December. Mm-hmm. Two, these two, the tragic deaths of these two Guatemalan children. Yeah, and in fact, 22 now. We have 22 immigrants who've died in ICE detention over the last two years. But, yeah. But specific to, to, to these Guatemalan children, these, these two kids. To what extent did this have anything to do with Ali North and Ronald Reagan and the whole Contra thing? Well, it has, I mean, in this it's more Honduras, it has everything to do with it. I mean, Iran-Contra... So it was a consequential conspiracy on on many levels. One, it was the, the 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 new right, the conservative movement's effort to kind of reestablish the authority of the executive branch to wage unaccountable war after you know after a whole set of, of restraints that were put in after Watergate, after Vietnam. Iran Contra was really just a workaround, you know, a way that the executive branch Ali North and and all of those Iran Contra uh, luminaries could raise money. And one way was the sell high-tech weaponry to to revolutionary Iran and then divert the money to support the Contras in Nicaragua. It was specifically about Iran and Nicaragua, but it was really this larger restoration of the imperial presidency. Mm. And, you know, I mean, the whole history, whole post-war history of, uh, certainly post-Vietnam history of of this this effort to rein in U.S. foreign policy and hold it accountable and democratize foreign policy and 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 ongoing efforts to 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 roll that democratization back and that's what Iran Contra was about and you just see the return of all of these people John Bolton yeah you know, John Bolton was a was 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 on the legal team of Reagan that tried to justify a lot of the a lot of the actions that went into Iran Contra but there's no end to them Dick Cheney you know Oliver North it's it's really the foreign policy establishment wow so to what extent is the I mean we see Guatemalan refugees coming and Honduran and and Salvadoran and we know in El Salvador, I, you know, I remember, you know, John Negroponte went down there and suddenly yeah. we started seeing people showing up with, you know, their hands tied behind their backs and a bullet in the back of their head, which is very similar to what happened after he went to Iraq, as I recall. To what extent is U.S. foreign policy the driver of the so-called immigrant crisis or, or asylum seeker crisis the, the, that we have right now? On our southern border, I mean, is it 100 percent? Is it 130 yeah, percent? Yeah, well, 70%? it's foreign policy, it's economic policy, it's military policy, it's a drug war. I mean, Guatemala is a good lens, a tragic lens, but a good lens to to understand the crisis in full. You know, there's the the coup that we talked about. There's the U.S. support for the Guatemalan military. There's the free trade policies that the U.S. pushed after. Uh, right before the end of the Cold War, which were devastating and have been devastating to to, to peasant farmers, it makes you know it destroys regional markets by flooding these economies with cheap corn, and so these farmers can't compete. But then there's no jobs to take. The U.S.'s promotion of biofuels 
the you know, the, the transformation of all these peasant lands into into plantations for African palm. Uh, another factor is the U.S.'s drug war, Plan Colombia, which um, which basically took the violence that was concentrated in the Andes around cocaine production and 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 telegraphed it up through Central America and Mexico by by diversifying the cartels. I mean, there's so many different dimensions in which the crisis in Guatemala that that are pushing, that it's creating these waves of refugees, are um, is caused by U.S. policy. And Guatemala is just a microcosm of that. We could say the same thing about NAFTA. We could say the same thing about the drug war in Mexico. You know, this this. But one thumb way thumbnail way of thinking about it is if you look at. Bill Clinton's three signature Latin American policies. One was NAFTA, one was playing, second was playing Colombia, and the third was the militarization of the border. All of those things kind of come together and create the social explosion, and, and, mm. and that's kind of encapsulated and embodied in the death of, 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 of these two children, as well as, as, the, as the other, other refugees and asylum seekers that, that you mentioned in ICE in ICE detention. Right. We're talking with Professor Greg Grandin, professor of history at New York University, a member of the nation's editorial board. Your book, The Last Colonial Massacre, talks about the uh, the history of the Border Patrol. There's two different agencies that are dealing with these issues, I suppose. Uh, the Border Patrol at the border and then ICE internal to the United States. Um, what role are these agencies playing? I hate to call this a crisis because I think Trump has created, you know, crisis for the United States. It's not a crisis. It's obviously a crisis for Guatemala and for the Guatemalans and right. the people fleeing the area. But, you know, we could easily deal with these, with these right. refugees it's, it's we historically have. Semantics. So what, what exactly is the crisis? The yeah, crisis so, I, the, I, so uh, I, I lack a word to describe yeah. it, but uh, maybe yeah. you've got no, one. No, no, the catastrophe. <laughs> we yeah. just call it the catastrophe there you go. Okay. In, in total. of um, Well, uh, the Border Patrol, one of the uh, last colonial massacre was really focused on Guatemala, but one of the things that it looked at was the way this, um, it wasn't really about the Border Patrol, but it was it did focus on the, uh, somebody who was a former Border Patrol agent who in 1960, uh, in late 1950s, joined um, the public, um, public safety program of the State Department, which was really just a front for the CIA. Uh, John Lungan, he started out in Oklahoma's sheriff's office, then he worked for the Border Patrol. He was involved in, uh, in administering Operation Wetback, which was his mass deportation program of the Border Patrol. But then, but then a lot of that knowledge that was uh, that was developed in Operation Wetback was then was then um, exported internationally. Uh, he then went on to train security forces in in a number of third world hotspots: Venezuela, Dominican Republic, Southeast Asia, Thailand in particular, and Guatemala. And one of the things that he did in Guatemala was basically put into place uh, a modern death squad. And when I say a modern death squad, what I mean by that is is a, a, a paramilitary unit that is linked to the security apparatus of a country that's able to gather intelligence, process that intelligence, and act on it in a coordinated manner, rapid manner, that then gathers more intelligence. Now, this is a U.S. And, Border Patrol agent. <laughs> yeah, you're a U.S. Border Patrol agent. I know. So Way we, down in Guatemala, in we, kind of, we kind of have this impression of the Border Patrol as this sleepy, backwater federal agency that might or might not be abusive at any particular moment and not really at the crux of the ideological struggles of the Cold War. But in fact, uh, the Border Patrol and as we're seeing in today's politics, the border is a central axis of American po 
politics and police power, and that was also true in its, in its role in expanding the radius of paramilitary action. Yeah, it's remarkable stuff. Greg, thank you so much for the great work you're doing and for highlighting these issues for us. Well, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Professor Greg Grandin, his upcoming book, it'll be out in March. I'm guessing you can probably pre-order it now, is The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall. Professor of History at New York University's previous book, The Last Colonial Massacre, and he writes for The Nation magazine, thenation.com, and in fact, some brilliant, brilliant stuff. Greg, thanks a lot. Thank you. Michael in Los Angeles. Hey, Michael. Thanks for listening hey. to KPFK. What's up? Uh, good morning, sir. Hey, I, I wanted to talk about what, what I perceive as this wall as being racist, but nobody is bringing up the fact that Canada actually has 151,000 miles of unsecured ocean border and then 5,500 miles of border with the U.S., and he doesn't want to put a wall there. It's obviously not about security. It's about racism. Yeah, well, there's very few brown people in Canada. But 151,000 miles of unsecured border in Canada with the ocean anybody could cross, yeah. including Russians, but I guess he doesn't care about that. Yeah. No, it's, this, is, this is all dog whistle politics. It's just that simple. This is Richard Nixon's war on drugs. It's uh, George Herbert Walker Bush's war on drugs. That's what this is, and it's all code for those people. Michael, thank you. Well said. Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey, Morris, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's up? Uh, listen, you know what Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and, and Mr. O'Rourke have in common? They all have a humane narrative. Mm. And it's going to be difficult for the media to silence all of them. Uh, okay, you know, you got 400 families that own 80% of the wealth in this country, which means they also control the narratives. And how do they do that? They got these false narratives, linguistic facades, and euphemistic phrases. That's the language of our media today. But, but because we don't hear about stuff, believe me, stuff is going on. Stuff is going on. And, and the elites right now, uh, uh, they know they're in trouble because, you know, they can shut down one candidate. Maybe they can hurt another candidate. Well, but they can't distort the whole message every day. And, and this is a blue wave. Folks, if, if, if you've got despair, get excited because a new wave of happiness and joy is coming to this country. I agree. I am very optimistic. I, I am very hopeful. In some ways, I think that uh, Susan Sarandon's prediction has come true, Morris, and uh, Donald Trump's presidency has showed us the blood-drenched themes of the Republican uh, of the Republicans in their party, and, and uh, I think Americans are waking up. I really do. Omar in Herndon, Virginia. Hey, Omar, what's on your mind today? With this power that we have right now, I'm just concerned that it might backfire on us, so I'm seeking your advice. Do you think it's wise to impeach Donald Trump or just focus aggressively on an American agenda that we're going to plant a seed for 2020? Uh, what was your opinion on that? Thank you. I think both are important, Omar. I think that the American people are able to distinguish between a trumped-up charge, no pun intended, and a real charge. You know, when Bill Clinton was impeached, a large percentage of Americans, including a lot of Republicans, were going, really, we're going to kick this guy out of office for having consenting sex with an adult and lying about it? I mean, really? If you're going to do that, you had to kick Jack Kennedy out of office, Lyndon Johnson out of office. I, probably Richard Nixon's the only guy who hasn't had an affair. Franklin Roosevelt had a mistress. Dwight Eisenhower had a mistress. The, it was like, who cares, right? Well, that's a whole different thing from colluding with a foreign power to be elected president, from taking money from sketchy foreign governments and sketchy oligarchs and organized crime groups around the world 
in order to prop up your business enterprise, from basically selling the presidency, from you know engaging in naked fraud. I mean, lying to the American people some 7,000 times in two years. I think that Americans get it, that putting lobbyists in charge of agencies that are supposed to protect us from lobbyists, I think the American people get it, Omar, that Donald Trump has actually committed a whole series of actual real crimes. And I'm not just talking about, you know, his over 20 women now who have come forward and said that he attacked them sexually. You could say, well, that's like the Bill Clinton thing. Well, no, Bill Clinton was not accused of assault. He was accused of lying about a relationship, a romantic relationship that went on for, and, and sexual, that went on for uh, apparently a little less than a year. So, right, I mean, just, just, you know, campaign finance violations, directing Michael Cohen to pay off Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal so that it wouldn't get into the election. That's a crime. That's a felony crime. And that's a crime that led to his becoming president, which means his presidency is illegitimate. If it was just that that he was impeached for, I get it. Now, this is before the election. Bill Clinton was lying about having sex with Monica Lewinsky after he'd been reelected, in fact. And this was in 1999. For those who want to draw that comparison, I just don't think it works. But I think that impeachment would highlight his crimes, and that's a good thing. Hey, you know, you're going to start hearing nonstop weight loss commercials everywhere. And every time you do, I want you to think about Riduzone. It's the only weight loss product I endorse and the one that worked for my wife. Louise wanted to lose a little weight last summer. She read about university research and how one molecule helps regulate appetite. Riduzone is designed to boost levels of that one molecule and your metabolism, too, so you stop craving the wrong foods like too many holiday sweets and you burn calories faster. With her appetite and cravings under control, she said losing weight was easy. She has more energy on her hikes and she looks amazing. Listen, when diet and exercise aren't enough, get the only weight loss product I endorse, non-prescription, FDA-accepted Riduzone. While supplies last, to use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive 30% off a pack of three bottles plus free shipping. Go to Riduzone.com. That's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E, R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. Riduzone.com. Use the promo code TOM. Riduzone.com. Our book today is Confessions of a Rogue Nuclear Regulator by Gregory B. Jaxo, former chairman of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. I'm going to start with the last paragraph of Chapter 1, and then I'll start reading Chapter 2. In hindsight, the Fukushima incident revealed what has long been the sad truth about nuclear safety. The nuclear power industry has developed too much control over the NRC and Congress. In the aftermath of the accident, I found myself moving from my role as a scientist impressed by nuclear power to a fierce nuclear safety advocate. I now believe that nuclear power is more hazardous than it's worth. Because the industry relies too much on controlling its own regulation, the continued use of nuclear power will lead to catastrophe in this country or somewhere else in the world. This is a truth we must all confront. Chapter 2. The Fukushima accident in Japan was not the first accident to belie the promise of nuclear power. In its early years, the commercial nuclear industry had only a limited understanding of the operations, science, and engineering of actual power plants. This ignorance led to the first major nuclear power plant accident just outside Harrisburg, the state capital of Pennsylvania, in 1979. Three Mile Island prompted a flurry of reforms and a pile of promises that the public would be protected from future nuclear calamities. Through the mid-1980s, it appeared these promises were being kept. 
Construction on new plants slowly resumed without major accidents. Then suddenly, strange radiation measurements were detected in Sweden. Governments in Europe and throughout the world soon learned that a disaster had occurred at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in the Soviet Union. Like a developing photograph in a bath of chemicals, the reality of nuclear power was starting to come clear. One nuclear accident was an oversight, a mistake, an aberration. Two nuclear accidents hinted at a serious problem with the technology. A third would cement the conclusion that nuclear power plants were simply going to have accidents on a relatively consistent schedule. After Three Mile Island, after Chernobyl, the third accident nearly occurred in 2002 at the troubled Davis-Bessie nuclear power plant in Ohio. The problem is that with each new accident, all the people in charge of nuclear safety seemed to revert to the belief that this one would be the last one. As chairman of the NRC, I battled nearly every day against this instinct to believe that the worst was over. You can prepare for the next accident only if you get all the players to admit that a next one is coming, even if and when are impossible to predict. Before Fukushima, too many people I encountered simply did not believe the next one would ever come. Their view is not surprising. Accidents are rare in Chernobyl and Three Mile Island. It happened decades earlier. Yet I continue to believe I could challenge this complacency. I seized one opportunity just after I became chairman. Four days before President Obama tapped me to lead the commission, I spoke at a conference organized by the North American Young Generation in Nuclear, an industry group of professionals entering the field as nuclear operators, designers of reactors, or academic experts in nuclear technology. As I looked out at the crowd, it dawned on me that many of these people had never lived through a nuclear power accident. Even if I had been only nine years old when Three Mile Island occurred, when Chernobyl happened, I was a teenager more worried about surviving my freshman year of high school than about nuclear disaster. The people I was speaking to were even younger. I wondered how they had experienced these seminal events. Being a scientist, I decided to conduct an experiment. I asked everyone in the audience to stand if they were born after 1979, the year of Three Mile Island. Nearly everyone stood. After they sat down, I asked them to stand if they were born after 1986, the date of the Chernobyl accident. Once again, nearly everyone stood. These industry-defining accidents have become dry case studies taught in college classes. The next generation of American nuclear power professionals has never experienced the confusion of a nuclear accident as it is happening. And so it's essential that we remember and teach the lessons of Three Mile Island and Chernobyl. For reviewing these accidents shows common themes of missed opportunity, human failings, and technological overconfidence. No amount of forgetting can change these simple facts. The March 1979 accident at the Three Mile Island nuclear power plant in Pennsylvania seems almost like something out of a science fiction horror film. The cover of Time magazine captured the national mood of chaos, confusion, and fear. The emergency red phrase nuclear nightmare slashed across the dark black cooling towers of the plant. There was no live streamed video as there would be after the Fukushima accident, but the public could imagine the scene inside the reactor. Just 12 days before the accident, the China Syndrome, a feature film starring Jane Fonda and Michael Douglas as reporters who uncover a major incident in a nuclear plant, had been released. Perhaps the hundreds of journalists gathered outside Harrisburg believed they too would land such a story. It started on March 28th at around 4 a.m. when a water pump stopped working. The failed pump affected the steam generators, large cylinders filled with many tiny metal tubes that help turn hot water from the nuclear engine into steam so that the turbines can generate electricity. And then he goes through the whole process there. Confessions of a Rogue Nuclear Regulator by Gregory B. Jackso.
You're listening to Tom Hartman. Monty in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Hey, Monty, what's on your mind today? Well, you know, you watch, you know, the passion, mm-hmm. how the Democratic Party has evolved. You look at the Republicans, everything they view, whether it's the EPA, women's rights, LGBTQ community, is straight out of the 70s, other than Russia, right? Because, yeah. you know, in the 70s and 80s, we were anti-Russia. Now they're all for it. But what alarms me the most, Tom, and you could speak to this better than I can as someone who knows the history, how do the American people keep falling for the same lie, right? There was no weapons of destruction in Iraq. Bush got us to go to a war. There is no threat by immigration, and Trump's going to build this wall to put money in the pockets of his cronies. How do we keep falling for the same fear based on no evidence? You're 100% more likely to be shot and killed by a white domestic terrorist in America than an undocumented immigrant. How do the American people not evolve with their intelligence? With the complicity of the media, you have to acknowledge that. The, the media does not call out Republican policies. They're afraid to come right out and say, and in fact, you won't even hear these conversations on the Sunday shows, which for years I've joked, you know, if it's Sunday, it's meet the Republicans. They won't ask these direct questions like, you know, do you still want to privatize Social Security? Do you still think that Medicare should be, you know, taken off the government and put onto United Healthcare? Do you, do you still think that oil companies and refineries should be able to put more poison in the air? They won't go there. And the reason they won't go there is because they know that if the Republicans start feeling uncomfortable, they won't come on their programs. And if they go, don't come so on their programs. So how pro- do we fight it, Tom, besides listening to a show like yours, well, that's, besides reading, you know. That's you know, it, Monty. We we've, we've got to become our own media, you know, and this is where social media has some help. Although, you know, again, I, I don't think that uh, Mark Zuckerberg is our great savior either. But talking to your friends, talking to everybody you know, getting the message out. I, I'm very encouraged by the fact that the one program on MSNBC that does the best job, in my mind, of actually talking about the issues is Rachel Maddow's show, and it's now the number one show on cable news. I think that should tell everybody in the industry, this is what you need to do. Right. People are watching the truth. They're not watching fake news, you know, so that's what I don't understand why the media is so reluctant, because Rachel's show is making money and the most people are watching it. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. But, you know, keep in mind, first of all, who owns NBC? And this isn't just to pick on NBC. You know, NBC is owned by Comcast. Right. CNN is owned by AT&T. Do you expect these giant monopolistic corporations to really want there to be conversations about giant monopolistic corporations? I don't exactly. think so. That is kind of a whole nother thing, you know, as a media monopoly issue. But, but I think that the, the lack of GOP values that you're identifying and concerned about, Monty, is very, very real. The, the party is a bunch of sellouts. And yeah, it was such a contrast yesterday. Louise commented to me, wow, watching the Democrats is like watching real people and watching the Republicans. Somebody made the comment on TV that, you know, it's like watching the 1956 business roundtable or something like that. You know, it's, it's out of Mad Men. You know, Mad Men, the, the TV show. It's just, it's bizarre. Yeah, good yeah. point, good yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah, All just... right, Tom, thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Monty. Good to hear from you. John in San Francisco, listening on uh, 910 Real Talk. Hey, John, what's up? I bought six copies of your book, Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight, and gave them out for Christmas. And um, I'm really happy about doing that. Well, Grateful you. for you to put re- redo uh, the stats on it and stuff, because I read the book a few years ago. Anyway, um, I wanted to talk about Nancy Pelosi's uh, press conferences and get back to my old uh, rant, which is that the Republic—I mean, the Democrats need to up their game on messaging, and they need to have daily press conferences where they give five-minute briefings on what they did today and what they're doing 
and what the Republicans aren't doing and what they are doing. They are doing and, those things know, right now, John. They're they're literally there are there are Democrats holding multiple press conferences every single day, seven days a week in Washington, D.C. and around the country. The thing is that generally they don't get much coverage. Well, what I'm suggesting is they do it at the same time between four and five o'clock East Coast time so that they can go right to it. They always got it. And it's you can change around the Senate and, and Congress people have two people do it from the Democratic Party and and always be able to rely on them for messaging and to put the pressure and the ball back in their court. Right. Well, one other thing I would like to say is that we need to put a clock on the elder portions of our party who are in Congress and Senate and start giving more assignments to the younger members of the staff. And I think we should jump over Steny Hoyer and look for a replacement for Nancy, because I think she ought to retire in a couple of sessions. She's doing a great job. And, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm trying to, you know, promote something for the future, but they really need to kind of change the game and, and get rid of the seniority thing. Yeah, start I, younger, younger. I, I, I get that. But she doesn't have that position merely by seniority. She has that position by talent, by virtue of talent. And I, arguably, that's the case with Steny Hoyer. I'm not a big fan of Steny Hoyer. I am a huge fan of Nancy Pelosi. We'll see how it all shakes out, John. It's up to the party. Thanks a lot for the call. Jay in Dillon, South Carolina. Hey, Jay, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's up? Hey, Tom, long, very long time listener, and um, thank you for all you do. Thank you. So I have some very intelligent friends of mine who buy into the narrative that the deep state is what's running things, and you know this one, and that uh, Donald Trump is anti-deep state, and they give a number of examples, and more recently the withdrawal of troops from Syria and Afghanistan, and I don't know what to say to them. I don't buy into it, but how, how would you respond to them? Well, first of all, there's varying definitions of deep state. I mean, the, the kind of real definition, the definition that has been accepted for a long time, and it's not, a, it's not a pejorative, it's not a bad thing, is that it is all of those people who are full-time government employees who are not political appointees, essentially. That right. the state continues to run regardless of who's there. The Social Security continues to write checks. IRS continues to collect money. The USDA continues to inspect food. All those kinds of things. Generally, that's referred to as the administrative state. Steve Bannon came out and said that one of the goals of the Trump administration is to, and I quote, dismantle the administrative state which is basically take apart the American government. Now, they would do this on behalf of mostly polluting industries or people who want to loot our public lands. Uh, you know, this is, this is just so, so uh, basically criminal. And of course, the pejorative one is like, oh my God, there's all these people who are, you know, permanent, uh, you know, like the FBI director who doesn't like Trump, you know. He's a Republican, but he doesn't like Trump. So they kind of weirdly twisted into this kind of you know, it's like anthropomorphizing it or something, giving it a personality, you know, which is nonsense. And I don't see any relationship between any deep state, regardless of how you define it, and foreign policy, at least with regard to Syria and Afghanistan and, and you know, pulling out some troops. I mean, I don't get it. What's, what's the critique? What, you know, when you say, what, what are you talking about? What do they say? Yeah, so it's actually, it seemed, they seem to go cognitively dissonant. You know, like, they seem to have this boogeyman mentality. And I always liken it to the war machine and, you know, the big oil guys and so forth. And I say, but, you know, he's satisfied all those. He's feeding them. So who is this deep state you're talking about? And then they go blank on me, sort yeah. of. 
You know? Well, the other thing that, that we only have limited information on, because a lot of these numbers are classified, is how many of the troops who are being pulled out of various places, uh, Iraq is a huge example of this, are being replaced by uh, Blackwater-type contractors. Yeah, see, that's what I think the deep state is. I think it's special interest. And I think well, that's a corrupt state. A corrupt state, yeah. yeah. And I've always felt like, you know, they're twisting, you were talking about anti-amorphism, whatever however yeah. the term was, that I feel like they twisted it, because it's really the progressives who are addressing the corrupt state, those special interests hidden in the shadows, not Donald Trump. You know, so I think they've twisted it somehow. Yeah. You know, it, that's how I look at it. Yeah, you want, a, you want a deep state that is corrupting America and destroying our country. Look at Ryan Zinke. Look at Scott Pruitt. Look at the guys that Donald Trump has put in charge of these agencies that are supposed to protect the assets of the American people and the health and welfare yeah. of the American people. I mean, yeah. if you yeah. want a deep state, I would point there. Jay, thanks for the call. It's a good one. Here's a New Year's resolution that's easy to keep. Make 2019 your most comfortable and productive year ever by getting yourself an X chair. I used to constantly feel uncomfortable throughout the workday until I realized I was spending thousands of hours sitting in the wrong chair. So follow my example and ditch that no-name superstore chair and trade up to the X chair. I've been raving about how much I love my X chair for geez, years. Well, if you're on the fence about buying one, here's great news. Now you can finance the purchase of your X chair for as little as $30 a month. When you sit in it, you'll understand why I love my X chair so much. X chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to X chair Tom. That's T-H-O xchairtom.com now. That's xchairtom.com, T-H-O-M. Or call 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. X-CHAIR comes with a 30-day, no questions asked, guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. xchairtom.com. Congressman Mark Pocan on the line with us. He is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, along with Pramila Jayapal. He represents the state of Wisconsin's second district in Congress in the U.S. House of Representatives. And his website is pocan.house.gov, P-O-C-A-N. His Twitter handle is Rep. Mark Pocan, is in Representative Rep. Mark Pocan. Congressman, I'm curious your thoughts on Elizabeth Warren announcing her candidacy for president or her opening an exploratory committee. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you, and Happy New Year to all your listeners and to you, Tom. Congress mm. changes. Democrats will be in control. We're going to vote on right away a couple of measures that are sending to the Senate, a budget bill that would fund Homeland Security, I think, until February 8th, I believe, is the date, and then also a bill to fund all the other agencies that are out there, which I think is another six through the end of September, our fiscal year. And, you know, the ball's back in their court. Essentially, it's very similar to what the Senate sent to us that the president originally agreed to before a few talking heads convinced him to do otherwise, and then we started the shutdown, which, of course, was very convenient for him to get off the subject of Michael Cohen and the Mueller investigation and everything else that's been haunting him. So we'll see, but at least we'll show that Democrats have an alternative, that we want to reopen the government, and the ball will largely be in the president's court. That's the plan we have right now. Yeah, very interesting. Good stuff. So you know, your thoughts on how the 2020 race might be shaping up? Yeah, you know, I'll tell you, I, I think there's going to be a lot of people kicking the tires on this. Um, Elizabeth Warren, you know, is someone who I think a lot of us last time were surprised she didn't get in the race. She kind of was 
an interesting figure that could have really, I think, been a, a strong voice. She was, certainly will be this time. You know, a lot of us in the progressive movement have enormous respect for her. A lot of other candidates are going to be in that race. In fact, someone who's a good friend in Washington, who used to be a chief of staff for uh, Dave Obie, said he keeps a list of everyone this last year who went to the first four primary states who have an outside pay consultant and a third factor. I'm forgetting what it is offhand. And he has a list of 42 names that are kicking the tires right now about running wow. for president. So, you know, I think this is the first of probably a lot of folks doing that. But uh, Elizabeth Warren certainly is going to be one of the major names if she gets in the race, without question. You know, she and a Bernie Sanders and a Joe Biden and some others are, are the big, big, big names. Wow. Okay. So let's pick up some phone calls here for you. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, Congressman Pocan taking your calls. Charlie in Madison, Wisconsin. Charlie, you got a question for Congressman Pocan? Yeah, I do. One of the first things you guys are going to be voting on is something called pay-go, pay-as-you-go point of order. Is that something you're in favor of, or are you going to vote no on that? Yeah, so this is one that there's incredible misinformation. Thank you for bringing it up, Charlie. There is in statute a pay-go rule that says for you to do something like a Medicare fall or anything that you have to be able to pay for it, whether it be cuts or tax increases. The Republicans had a policy called cut-go, and we are completely getting rid of that, uh, that you have to only cut in order to pay for something. The problem is we have a rules package that's up that mentions pay-go, and there's a lot of people who think that that alone is the issue, when the issue is actually the statute. In the rules package, they kept PAYGO language, and everyone thinks that's a backdoor way to stop big ideas from happening. What's the reality is, if you don't have PAYGO in the rules package, and it's in statute, anything that would happen big would have to then, the funding decisions for PAYGO, where you get the funding from, would come then from the Senate or the president, which both are Republicans. So this is not a proposal to have it. We can waive it and have waived it many times previously. This is merely keeping it in the rules package to not give up the Democratic House's authority. However, um, right now, Pramila Jayapal and I are going to be announcing we're getting, introducing a bill to get rid of the statute pay goal. That's what actually matters. So hmm. people are getting a little lost online right now. I've, I've watched a lot of Twitter traffic where the rule is not the problem. In fact, uh, the rule helps keep the House Democrats involved in any decision-making as long as there's a statute. What we need to do is get rid of the statute. So I, the I really appreciate the question. Yeah, the law, because people are getting way off on the rule, and if you actually didn't have it in a rule, and this is something we have concerns clearly about PAYGO. There's no way we would, we'd like to get rid of the statute, the law, for it. But if you just get rid of it as a rule, um, you would be giving up the House's ability to have any control on it. You'd give it to the Republican Senate and the Republican President. So we need to deal with the statute, but a lot of people online right now are getting lost on the rule, and um, we're hoping to provide some clarity very soon on this because uh, it's starting to spin a little bit out of control, and I appreciate that question, Charlie. Cheryl in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yeah, <clears throat> Representative Pocan, um, at first, happy new, new year to both of you there. Thank you. The military budget is triple what it was in the 90s under Bill Clinton, and I was fighting militarism then. When I went to college, and I'm 66, there was a program called the National Defense Student Loan Program that was some kind of a rider on a defense appropriation bill that created a program with a 3% at the time, 3% interest rate for student loans, for college loans. Uh, those were pretty easy to pay off. I paid mine off, but it helped me to get through college. I wouldn't be surprised if that's the program Elizabeth Warren had. She's in my age bracket. 
I think that um, with the House now being in the hands of the Democrats, if the next appropriation for the military or even a separate legislation, you could get a student loan program that's funded by the military appropriations. Can you uh, comment on that idea? You know, it's something I think we could look at. You're right. We're definitely going to be talking about funding for higher education. We'll also be talking about apprenticeships, other ways to get higher skills to get a better paying job. But around college affordability, there's a couple of measures out there. There's, there's some free tuition measures that take care of partial expenses, just tuition. There's some debt-free college proposals that take care of your living expenses, books, and college. Uh, and that's something I know that we've been very strongly with with the Progressive Caucus. And then there's also things like repaying debt and other measures that the Republicans try to get rid of, like people in public service jobs who've been able to relieve some of their debt. So we need to have a big kind of picture look at uh, all sorts of aspects of this. It's now the second largest consumer debt that's out there, and I think you'll see that discussion for sure. Yeah, wonderful. And if we could take a, take a bite out of the hide of the Department of Defense to pay for student loans or, student, or for, yeah, free college, I mean, shades of the GI Bill, right? Yeah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Representative Mark Pocan, his Twitter handle, Rep Mark Pocan. You can find his website at Pocan, P-O-C-A-N.house.gov. Welcome back. John Harbin here with you. Joan McCarter is, she and Mark Sumner are just absolutely brilliant writers, and they produce so much great content for Daily Kos. She says there's a nice little silver lining for Vice President Mike Pence, the cabinet and senior administration officials in the government shutdown. While 800,000 federal employees and thousands of people working for the government under contract are going without paychecks, administration folks are getting $10,000 raises. This is the cabinet secretaries, all the, all the cabinets members, the deputy secretaries, the administrators, like the EPA administrator, they're getting 10000 bucks. Why? Well, here it is. She said, former Speaker of the House Paul Ryan refused to bring the funding bills for the multiple agencies to the floor, including a pay freeze first enacted in 2013 and renewed every year. When those bills died, so did the pay freeze. So not only do these guys get raises, they get five years worth of raises starting with next week's paycheck. And it's because Trump shut the government down. I mean, it doesn't get more bizarre than that. I mean, it's just, that's just breathtaking. Steve in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Steve, what's up? Hey, hey Tom. Uh, Morris is right. The blue wave is here. It's coming, and, it, and it, we're not going to be stopped. We're going to keep going here. I do want to talk about Ocasio-Cortez's idea there and stuff. Mm-hmm. But just a quick thing I would, I would like to point out, too. The Sherman Antitrust Act is not being enforced at all. AT&T owns HBO, and they own DirecTV. And they've permanently removed HBO from the DISH network since November 1st. And I think they're trying to run them out of business, and it's, it's very hmm. concerning. That's and then you look at the airlines and stuff, and we all know where that goes. Right. Now, going to this Ocasio-Cortez, um, I want to talk about uh, Liz Cheney yesterday got on, this, on the Congress floor, and she was talking about the fraud of socialism. And, you know, I'd have to agree to some degree here because, yes, the mega-wealthy have been riding on the gravy train for far too long, and they've been hoovering up all the gains, and they've been the beneficiaries of the low, low tax rate since our St. Reagan was anointed. And whilst Joe and Mary average person, 
They get, you know, kind of hosed every which way till Sunday with each passing year. This fraud and heist needs to end here now. Yeah, it's- I agree. And Cheney uh, is, uh, it's, it's virtually obscene, you know, her, her rant. But that's, I guess that's the Cheney family. By the way, see the movie Vice. It's, it's great. Steve, thanks a lot for the call. And, and by the way, Alexander Ocasio, by saying taxes should go high, as high as 70%, that's what LBJ lowered the top tax rate to, 74%. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. And that was like in 1967. I mean, from the 1930s up until 67, the top tax rate had been 91%. If your New Year's resolutions include taking better care of yourself and being smarter with your finances, Harry's has you covered. Plus, you'll get a great shave in the bargain. Esquire magazine was so impressed, they awarded Harry's their 2018 Grooming Award. Harry's smooth, comfortable glide and close shave will have you hooked in no time. I won't shave with anything but Harry's. Harry's wants to help you start the new year off right. New customers get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and travel cover for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just use Tom, T-H-O-M, at harrys.com. Harry's replacement cartridges are just $2 each, and if you don't love your shave, you'll get a full refund from Harry's. For a limited time only, Harry's has a special offer for listeners to this program. New customers get $5 off a trial set from Harry's with the code Tom, T-H-O-M, at harrys.com. That means you get a razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and travel cover, all for just three bucks, plus free shipping. When you use the code TOM at Harry's, join the millions who've already switched and get on over to harrys.com today and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at checkout to claim your offer. You know, years ago, I, I would, on this program, well, I mean, for years, actually, I should say, I've been saying, we need to just repeal the Reagan tax cut. Ronald Reagan took the top tax rate from 74%, and by the way, it had been 91% from the 1930s right through... 1960, whatever it was, 68, 67, whatever year it was, LBJ lowered the tax rate. And he lowered it from 91% down to 74%, where it stood until Reagan came along and he lowered it to 25%, which is exactly what Warren Harding did in 1920, which kicked off the roaring 20s and led right to the crash in 1929. And I've been saying forever, you know, just repeal the damn Reagan tax cuts and all the other ones subsequent to it. Mark, watching Free Speech TV in Bellevue, Michigan. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind today? Hi. uh, I got a question about the Fed and how it might act during a financial collapse. Mm -hmm. I think there will be another financial collapse. That's likely not very controversial. But what I fear is that the Fed's just going to revert the form, you know, bail out the financial industry. Yeah. Forget about everyone else. Yep. Well, the, that's well, pretty much all the Fed can do. If you want to do what FDR did well, and bail out individual homeowners, that requires legislation. Okay, but I, well, I got a question about it because I found something in the Federal Reserve Act, you know, that might might be useful. Anyhow, so what I would like, it, let me just say what I would like it to do. I would mm-hmm. like it to just allow the financial industry just to fail and completely be liquidated. Right. You know, let the market work its magic. Yeah, right? that's what happened in 1933. Yeah. And so then, well, that would be just punishment for the crimes. That would be one thing. And also, it would, like, deflate the financial industry. It's mm-hmm. way too big, has way too much money, so this would kind of, like, you know, drain, drain most of it away. Mm-hmm. I guess my understanding of the problem is, though, that if you do that, the money markets will freeze up. Yep. And since we have just-in-time financing, even for productive industries... 
that means all the, you know, mom and pop productive industries, if not all of them, but a lot of them would also just kind of go bust because yep. they don't they don't have operating expenses. Yep. So what I would like to do, either you can tell me, you know, the feasibility, is there is a part of the Federal Reserve Act, Section 13, Paragraph 3, and what it allows the Fed to do is, as it as they put it, to provide funds directly to individuals, partnerships, and corporations under extreme circumstances. Well, that's what the Fed did in 2008 and 2009. Uh, out of that yeah, $29 million, trillion dollars that they were passing out, several trillion of it actually just went to billionaires. Well, I guess the thing is you got to have the right billionaires, the right people, though. Right. Well, my question is, okay, so could the Fed be repurposed to, okay, just allow the financial system to collapse, number one, but number two, to f- provide funds to money markets to keep the productive industries functioning. I don't know you why know not. I'm getting that? Yeah, that might require some legislation to set that up because, for example, right now, the only way that the Fed can buy or sell treasuries, for example, is through a commercial bank. The law requires all those transactions to go through commercial banks. So the guys in New York City get their, you know, get a slice of the profit um, Mm -hmm. while the Fed is just trying to move things on and off its balance sheet and trying to set interest rates and all that kind of stuff. No matter what the Fed does, the big banks make a profit. Now, the big banks, of course, own the Fed. So it's it's like that shouldn't be all that surprising. But that's the way it's set up. So there may be similar things that would, you know, prevent them from directly intervening currency markets. But I think doing what FDR did and just bailing out people at the very bottom. He bought hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of mortgages, these five-year exploding mortgages that people had in the 1930s and turned them into 30-year notes that were government-funded notes. Those only expired in the 1960s, and it saved millions of people's homes. Injecting money at the bottom is the way to do it. But Mark, that's an interesting question. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't know the details of the answer. But thanks for the call. Dennis watching us on YouTube in uh, Bergenfield, New Jersey. Hey, Dennis, what's up? Do you feel it's necessary to nationalize, have the government completely control and nationalize the largest banks in the United States? Or um, do you feel they should be private but regulated through Glass-Steagall, of course, and breaking up the biggest banks in the country? I think having the government-owned banks is a mistake. Without revisiting the, the election of 1832, I just think that banks are one of those categories of things where it really sh- they sh- it should be either privately owned or the really good alternative to banks, and, and which is how, how I do my banking, is through a credit union. Sure. Because um, they're, they're local yeah. community agencies that you actually become an owner of as you put money into their bank. If you were to break up the big banks, do you feel it would be wise to um, break them up by having them only operate in one state, or would you consider, you know, uh, you know the, the, of course you can do it through other ways, but like splitting up J.P. Morgan Chase into an investment part, a wholesale bank for corporate clients, and retail bank for insured deposits. So what way? Yeah. Uh, well, the latter is what you're describing is what Glass-Steagall was, you know, uh, Dennis, and that's, and I'm, I'm, I think that that's an absolute necessary first step, period, regardless of anything else. In terms of breaking the banks up, it used to be that banks were largely regional or, or statewide businesses. And uh, you they were know, only allowed to operate in one state. Well, it wasn't just that they weren't allowed to. You know, each state has its own banking regulatory boards, and each state has its own rules about banks. And so it was just a hassle for banks to operate in more than one state. But as businesses became more trans-state, banks had to become more trans-state to, to meet their needs, you know. And so now you've got, you know, the big banks are operating pretty much, as far as I know, in, in every state. 
I'm not sure exactly what to do about that. So you don't feel that they should be nationalized completely? No, absolutely not. I think that there's an entire realm of business where it's not inappropriate to, to call for them to become worker-owned co-ops and things like that, you know, essentially like credit unions are for yeah. banks or member-owned co-ops. What are the problems you see with nationalizing the banks? What would that be? Why would that, that be? That they thing? would be subject to political pressure. This is, you know, like right now you've got agencies that are very large, very powerful and have a lot of influence. The Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC and the FEC, the Federal Elections Commission, have both been highly politicized by the Republicans over the last decade, decade and a half, to the point that the FEC is no longer prosecuting crimes that have to do with elections, which are overwhelmingly committed by Republicans. And the Securities and Exchange Commission has, for years now, Mary Jo White, I mean, we ran a campaign on this program to convince Mary Jo White she should have, you know, a certain level of transparency among publicly traded companies. And, and no, no, they don't want that. We're not going to do that. So I'm just, so, uh, you know, I'm just concerned about the politicization of, of banks, you know, that, 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 that's, that there's a lot of money there and a lot of power that comes along with it. We live in a mixed economy, a, a mixed, you've got the government sector, which is about 20 some odd percent of our economy, and you've got the private sector, which is the other 80%. And the private sector, I think, really should be private. It just shouldn't be so private that it becomes privileged enterprise, to paraphrase Franklin Roosevelt. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsfortheOldGoat.com and loving what you do, Ellen Ratner's newest book. Bob Ney is on the line with us, the author of Sideswipe, former congressman from Ohio. Bob, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you, Tom. So what's up in the world? Well, let's, let's go because this is a moving chessboard and multiple pieces and a lot of issues that are going to be out there all over the, shall we say, wall today or steel barrier. Okay. I'm not sure. Yes. So I think it might be, might be steel barrier, and that right. makes everybody jump on board. As we know, the president's willing to accept the term steel barrier. He's going to go down to the border. He will have uh, tomorrow, uh, yeah, I don't know if you want to call it an address uh, to the country or a press conference, whatever he's going to do, he'll do something of that nature. And then he'll go down to the border to keep that issue alive. Now, meanwhile, Tom, as I said, you know, the moving pieces, he tried the approach of, you know, softening on, you know, the name itself. Now, there are 653 miles of pieces of things along our border, you know, in the sense of maybe a fence, uh, electronic devices or whatever. And the rest of it, of course, is monitored by Border Patrol. So that becomes, you know, Trump's big issue of finishing most of the rest of it off, which, frankly, even if it was approved, couldn't be done, you know, in our particular uh, current uh, political lifetime here. Yeah. And then the other thing is that he's threatening now uh, to do the emergency uh, activation through executive powers declaring the national emergency. Now, Tom, I think uh, those of us watching this on the Hill seem to think that that may, in fact, be the one tact uh, that he takes, because if he did that, he could let the shutdown end, uh, uh, leaving some problems that are definitely building hour by hour on that shutdown. Then he could say, okay, you know, it'll go through a court battle, and if he loses, well, you know, he, quote, tried, and then he tries again. That might be a way out. Bob, I, I think it's... If I may interrupt you, I'm, I'm very concerned about this whole national emergency thing. If the president declares a national emergency, there's over 100 different laws that kick in immediately that give him massive amounts of power. He can literally shut down or censor the Internet. 
This, this yeah. is a law that was passed back in the 50s. Uh, it refers to wire communications. It basically was to shut down telephone services in the event that we were attacked um, or that there were spies or something. Um, he, he, can, he can deploy troops within the United States in violation of posse comitatus and have them point guns at us. In other words, he could, he could start having his own army or a branch of it, you know, uh, policing us in ways that go way beyond their, their you know, he, he could have ICE start playing the role of cops, um, you know, stepping out, outside the role that they're designed for. Um, there, he could, I mean, he... I've got this list here. Um, sure. There's just the, the, the kill switch on internet traffic. He could start, you know, censoring Google, Facebook, Twitter. I mean, his his powers are just breathtaking. He could he could he could he could throw Americans in jail with you know he could functionally suspend habeas corpus throw throw Americans in jail without trial you know for a relatively short period of time but still once you and 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 once you're designated under presidential executive George W Bush's executive order 13224 and this is from the atlantic.com once a person is designated under the order no American can legally give him a job rent him an apartment provide him with medical services or even sell him a loaf of bread unless the government grants a license to allow that transaction this is these are the powers that trump could bring to bear against his political enemies it scares the hell out of me oh it's broad and and that's why i i termed it today not as a constitutional issue but as a constitutional potential crisis because this isn't just an issue of what you can do because you've you know rightfully described every single thing that can happen after that and of course this would have to be challenged you know, immediately. I don't know this is the course of action he'll take to do the emergency. You know, he's, he's trying to get that wall no matter what. But um, the Senate will be of no value to him uh, in the sense that Mitch McConnell has 22 seats. Look, Mitch McConnell didn't even show his face at the, uh, with the press with the president the other day. And Mitch McConnell, like I said, has 22 seats. Uh, Pat Roberts is leaving. Lamar Alexander, you can start to see what's going on over there. Yep. I think one of the ways for an exit plan for this without the constitutional crisis, Tom, is Senator Collins starts to convince people in the Senate that even though Mitch McConnell's sitting back, and honestly, Tom, maybe Mitch is letting her go out and do this, okay? Sure. Um, see if she can get the votes. I'm, you know, Mitch is a, a pretty Machiavellian politician. Let her go out and get the votes, and then McConnell says to the White House, "What do you? What am I supposed to do?" And then they pass some kind of measure, and then you know, dare him to to veto it. Right. Uh, which well, they have enough votes to override a veto. I mean, the le the bill that just right. passed the House yeah, is the same bill that passed the Senate with eighty votes. Right. Exactly. When when McConnell did what he wanted, and then right. you know got got hit for it. But I, I think that they will step in after some point in time, and maybe he wants them to override him. I don't think Tom he has an exit plan. Oh, if they I override him, that's the kickoff of his 2020 campaign. They sure, wouldn't give me the. They wouldn't give us the wall. You need to vote me back in with a huge mandate. That's the beginning of his campaign. Right now, yesterday on TV, on uh, I forget whether it was CNN or MSNBC, I, w I saw ads that were paid for by the Trump for President 2020 campaign talking about how he needs to get his wall. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, and, uh, and so I, you know, I think it gives him a way out because I don't think he has a way out. He's yeah. he's literally right or now, leaving. Bob. I don't know why this isn't a huge story in the media. He's running for president, literally right now, running advertisements on network television on the wall. Talk about politicizing the wall. Sure. It's Absolutely. Amazing. We knew that. Yeah. Bob Nay with Talk Media News, Thanks. author of Sideswipe. Thank you, Bob.
Thank you, Tom. Sasha in Kent, Washington. Hey, Sasha, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I have, in free moments, been toying with my ideas for a new constitution. Would that Never Never Land be possible? And one of the things in it is, if you shut down the government, you voted for it, you don't get paid. And you don't get your $1,000 a month car allowance. You don't get your franking privilege. You don't get your health insurance, nothing. When you start the government back up again, you don't get that money back. Hmm. Now, I grant you, most of them, the evil ones, you know, they've got lots of other income. But it makes a point anyway. Yeah. No, I, I, think, I think so. And some of that can be done by legislation, Sasha. But most of it right now needs to be happening at the ballot box. So, right. You know, and, and that's where we are wearing out our shoes. There you go. Amen. <laughs> I got to move along and get the last caller in here. James in Shasta Lake, California. Hey, James, what's up? Oh, hi. Finally. So, good. Yeah, I listen to your show all the time. So I'm a progressive and I, I appreciate your show. But um, I have a few things that progressives really irritate me about one of them is talk about news media and how we're not informing the people of the truth and of what's going on in the world and how we can beat it is we keep using the term our democracy and representative government when america is anything but a democracy and a representative government it may be a very small partial democracy but we're moving faster and faster toward corporatocracy or oligarchy or well, it was, you know, whatever. It was three years ago on this program that, that President Jimmy Carter said, former President Jimmy Carter said, America is no longer a democracy, it's an oligarchy. I mean, you can, exactly. you can find that on YouTube. And he was right. That said, we still have elections and we still can and do regularly elect progressives. And, well, uh, you know, I think things are changing, and I think they're changing very, very rapidly, James. I'm actually very optimistic about the future, knowing full well, well I do too. how, I, I, you know, the huge structural impediments that we have because of this oligarchy, particularly the media oligarchy. But still, the studies out there say that the only votes that really count are the ones that big money or the people with money. I, you know, again, I think that that's changing. I mean, this the America that you're describing, James, you know, was the America that Ronald Reagan wanted and was, you know, in, in some ways the, the America that the new Dems, the third way Dems, the DLC Dems, uh, you know, wanted too back in the day. Those days are gone. Or those days are changing, let's say. I'm, I, I am very hopeful for the future, and I'm not willing to give up and just throw my hands up in the air. I'm, I'm going to keep on fighting. That said, thanks so much for being with us today. It's been a fascinating day. The, the Trump freak show rolls on. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 